Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. Well, this is session 17, and uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to construct or begin to construct a a definition of biblical manhood. I'd like to start with a story. A woman accompanied her husband to the doctor's office. He had been suffering from an illness for some time, and after the uh, examination, as they were in the waiting room, the doctor came back out, and he invited the woman to join him alone in his office to talk about uh, her husband's condition. Evidently, he had been suffering from a rare disease for some time, and, and because it was accompanied by acute stress, his life was really in jeopardy. So he called her in, and he said, Ma'am, I've got some difficult news to tell you, and that is this. Unless you make some significant changes in the way you interact with your husband, he's probably not going to make it. And of course, that upset her. She began to cry. She said, well, what can I do? And he said, well, let me give you some things that you can do uh, over the next few months that could address his condition. First of all, uh, in the morning when he comes down, it's very, very important that you keep his life stress-free. So you need to be made up in the morning, dressed up, looking as best you can, greeting him with a smile when he comes down the stairs, always having a breakfast fixed for him, a full breakfast Ask him about what his day is about. Encourage him. Tell him he can make it. Then when he comes home at the end of the day, you need to be nice to him. Never speak about your problems to him, but always be willing to listen to his and always be available to him. And because stress is one of the major things manifesting this illness, you need to be available at all times to him sexually. So she heard that. And she got in the car and on the way home, Her husband turned to her and said, well, what did the doctor say? And tenderly she turned to him and said, you're going to (laughs) die. Well, on a more serious note, we've been doing some original research in the book of Genesis. And uh, what that book has been telling us is this, loud and clear, that without God and without those original manhood blueprints, our manhood is going to die. We need both of those in order to make it. And we've been stirring around in those opening chapters, trying to get some elements some resources from the pages of those scriptures in order to formulate a definition. And that's what we're going to do today and next week. Remember, at the beginning of the year, I made five promises to you. And one of those promises that I made was that before this year was out, that you would have a specific, clear, hopefully compelling definition of manhood so that from this point on, after next week, You will never, ever hesitate when somebody asks you the question, what is a man? So at the end of next week, hopefully, 
From that point on, you'll be motivated when somebody asks you that question or even more importantly, if a son asks you that question or as you talk to your son and tell him you need to be a man, he says, well, dad, what is a man? You'll be able to tell him concisely and compellingly and biblically. And that's what we want to do here today. So what I'd like to do, if you look at your outlines, I'd like to begin by just wrapping up the book of Genesis or at least those first three chapters that we looked at and make some final thoughts there. I have two things I want to address from Genesis here as we finish. First, what I'm going to call some key reminders. And then I want to speak to some of you about some objections people make to some of the things that I've been saying over the last couple of weeks. But first, some key reminders. Here's what Genesis tells us. First of all, Genesis tells us that men were created by God to be social and spiritual leaders. If there's one thing that Genesis shouts to us, although it does it in subtle ways... It tells us that the core of masculinity is a unique and special kind of leadership. And we're not finished with all that that is. But it has very implicit social and spiritual dimensions attached to it. And Genesis tells us, or at least it warns us in different ways, that we can go out in life and we can accomplish a lot and we can be a lot and we can do a lot but if we fail to incorporate these social and spiritual dimensions of leadership into our masculinity our manhood will always feel incomplete to ourselves and it will fall short to others these two dimensions the social and the spiritual dimensions are absolutely critical in a man feeling good about himself throughout his life. Genesis tells us that. When men abandon this leadership, or for whatever reason, when the pursuit of this leadership is somehow taken away from them, here's what I want you to know. Chaos ensues. When men do not accept the leadership that Genesis presents... Or when society, a society like ours, by the way, ceases to teach young men this social and spiritual dimension of leadership that we've seen in the book of Genesis, or even worse, when a society begins to demean this kind of leadership and say it shouldn't be a part of a man's life, then it doesn't take long before society quickly becomes troubled. When men cease to embrace the things that we've been talking about and will flesh out in the weeks to come, what happens is a society begins to be dumbed down. Men begin to act like boys on a consistent basis. They shun the things that make them men. They ignore them. They no longer embrace them. They're no longer honored among them. They no longer reach up high for their masculinity. They begin to act like boys. And in the process, women are forced to do what men won't do. You know, it's interesting. There's a unique passage in the scripture that speaks to a moment in the life of another nation, not our nation, but the nation of Israel. When because of their rebellion... They turned away from God. They didn't feel like they needed God anymore, and they decided to go their own independent way. And so God brings a judgment through this prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and he says to the nation, 
because you've ignored me, because you don't think you need my instruction, my understanding, I'm going to take away from you real men. And then as he, the, the prophet Isaiah pronounces his judgment, he begins to describe what that society will look like without real men. I want to read it to you on the screen here. Let's look at it. Here's what he says. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of the 50 and the honorable man. So the real men are gone, basically, from that society. And here's what the society begins to look like. And I will make mere lads, that is boys, their leaders, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. And when a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins need to be under your charge. He will protest on that day saying, I'm not gonna be your healer. In other words, everybody's saying, somebody take responsibility for this. And everybody's going, it's not my problem. I'm not going to take charge of that. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. The expression of their faces bear witness against them and they display their sin in this society like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children. And in this society, without real men, Women have to rule over them. That's what you see when men, real men, are removed, especially the kind of men who would embrace enthusiastically the social and spiritual dimensions of leadership that we see sketched briefly for us and hinted softly to us in those first three chapters of Genesis. Now, what we see in Isaiah in part, we see even in our day as men more and more shun the noble aspects of their masculinity. And when you see that happen in American culture, you follow the same progression. First, men become confused. They become directionless. They become troubled. <clears throat> and as that happens in men's lives, then women suffer. And when women suffer, they must fight now for their equality and for protection. Family life is harmed, and children are hurt. Did you know, what, you know what the number one fear of junior hires are in America today? It's not biological terrorism. The number one fear of a junior hire in America today is my dad's going to leave my mom. That's the number one fear. 25 million children today have been abandoned by their dads in America. In the last 10 years, teenage crime is up 600% in America. The youth storm against the elder. Society is oppressed. It begins to rot from the inside out because there's no one who can take the ruins and build them up because real men are missing. MIAs in the war of culture 
That's what this is telling us about. And so society becomes troubled. Guys, if you want to write something down, write this down. Here's just the kind of the key principle in it all, which is not in your notes. It'll say this. As men go, so go the life of a society. As men go, so go the life of a society. Men will always be in every culture what I call the first cause, the leading social and spiritual indicator of what comes next in a culture. So as men become irresponsible, what comes next is all of society becomes irresponsible. As men throw down their honor and their nobility, what comes next is Sodom and Gomorrah in that society. As men go, so go the life and health of a culture. So Genesis tells us that men were created to be social and spiritual leaders. Secondly, Genesis tells us that male, the male leadership that we saw in Genesis is not natural, but supernatural. And when I say supernatural, it's because it's created by listening to God. And by listening to God, a man accepts some specific responsibilities. I hope that when we went through talking about Adam, you didn't think, man, that requires a, a, a real leader, kind of the take charge type, the type A, captain of the football team, president of the company, the guy who commands attention, the natural born leader. <clears throat> Please don't think that. Few, few men, a very small percentage of men are natural born leaders. Genesis is not addressing natural born leadership. What leadership is being addressed in Genesis is the kind of leadership any man can embrace. So please write that down. Genesis is not about natural born leaders. Genesis is about courageous men who are willing to step forward to initiate and embrace the specific responsibilities God has given them to be a leader. So leadership basically from the scriptural standpoint, is just simply saying, I'll take those responsibilities. Remember in the Isaiah passage, they were saying, somebody take charge here. What Genesis says is that a real man will step forward and saying, hey, with God's help, I'll accept these responsibilities. And what we see at the Genesis mountain are three specific responsibilities that are at the core of masculinity. Here's what they are. First, we see a will to obey. God's will. Secondly, we see a work to do. Now that'll vary in every person's life. In Adam's life, he had a significant work to do in the garden. Thirdly, he was given a woman to love and to care for, to protect, to watch over, to lead with God's truth with. And any courageous man, any guy here in this room, teenager on up, can some place, at some point in your life, you can step in and say, I'll take those. Give me those. And with God's help, I'll fulfill these three responsibilities. And in fulfilling those three responsibilities, I step into a noble masculinity of leadership, the kind the scriptures speak about and honor and say, God created you to perform. That's what Genesis speaks to. Now, <clears throat> just for a moment, I want to take a little side trail for some of you. And that is that there are some people who've looked in Genesis, this is just religious stuff. 
And they've offered some objections to what I've talked about in Genesis, and I want to briefly mention those, and then you can think about these later, and then we'll move on into our definition. But just some key objections that people have to the book of Genesis, and two stand out. Because you'll have some that'll tell you that the male leadership that we talked about in Genesis is cultural, not creational. In other words, <clears throat> it is a real myth. It was made up. It's not true. It's fictitious. It's just to put men in an oppressive place of leadership. And men have been able to do that, especially in a more agrarian kind of society through the ages, by just being stronger, meaner, and tougher. So it's kind of more evolutionary that men have had a place of leadership over women, but it's been because of strength, not because that's the way it ought to be. Now, in answering that question, from a biblical point of view, I'd simply come at it this way. I would simply say this. If male leadership is in fact cultural, not creational, at least from the pages of the Bible, then why do the writers of the New Testament over and over again use creation to encourage male leadership rather than correct it? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? For instance, look at 1 Corinthians 11. Here's what it says. Paul's speaking. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. They can all get along. And then here's his reasoning for that. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. He goes back to creation and says, this is the way God designed it. It was set up this way. Not a harsh rulership, but a true noble spiritual and social leadership. And also, I would just simply say, you know, when Jesus Christ was on the earth, why did he choose 12 men to lead his church? He was not bound by culture, was he? He transcended culture. Secondly, I want you to know another objection is that some say that the leadership that we see in Genesis is not the result of God's original design. It's a result of the fall. In other words, men became leaders only after sin entered into the world. And they cite Galatians 3.28 as proof. Here's what it says. There is neither, this is in the New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And they say, see, that proves it. We're all the same. But now here's what I'd like you to do. Just remember that verse. It's in your notes. Go back and look at the context because this verse does not speak to some kind of gender sameness or rolelessness. This verse is speaking to spiritual sameness. It's just simply saying that regardless if you're socioeconomic background or racial background or gender background, all of us have the same salvation offered to us. All of us have the same rights and privileges spiritually with God. But nowhere in the, in the Bible are you going to find sameness for male and female. Because when God created male and female, He created them that way to be different. And to have a different interaction and a different life. And though functionally different, yes, they're equal and need to be valued that way. But when they work together that way, they experience the best of life. America is on a social experiment. And over time, we're going to see what the rewards are going to be. 
And I promise you, unless men step forward to be real men, our society will suffer. Now, with those kind of sobering words, let's take some final thoughts of Genesis and answer the question, what is a man? And to do that, what we want to do is press the two captains of humanity together. If there were two men that we would look to that would help us get a definition of manhood, it would be these two men, the Adam of Genesis and the Adam of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. I want you to know every man in this room will walk in the shadow of one of those two premier men. They are the captains of all humanity. Look at the quote there by Herman Ritterbos in your notes. He says this, Adam and Christ stand against each other as the two great figures at the entrance of two worlds and two creations, the old and the new. And in their actions and fates lie the decisions for all who belong to them. And then he makes this statement, because all men are comprehended in them. Every one of us share the heritage of one or both of these men. These men, look at letter B, are the leaders of two distinct spiritual destinies for all humanity, men and women. Here's the way the book of Romans says it, kind of sums it up this way. For if by the transgression of the one, that is Adam of the Genesis, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, that is Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so through the obedience of the one, that is the Adam of the New Testament, Jesus, the many were made righteous. That's one of the great statements of Scripture to a lost world. Through one man centered into the world, sin entered. Through one man, righteousness entered the world. Through one man, masculinity was lost. Through one man, masculinity was found. These are the two great captains of the human race. Look at letter C. These men also are leaders of two distinct masculine destinies. <clears throat> By the time your life is over, men, your life will either reflect the Adam of Genesis or the Adam of the Gospels. You will stand in the shadow of one or the light of the other. That's going to be your choice. But both are being presented to you. All right, let's look at these Adams in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what it says. So it's written, the first Adam, or the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, when you look at that passage, there's some things that jump out. You see two atoms. You see one earthy, one heavenly. You see one as just a living soul. You see one as a life-giving spirit. 
And therein we see these two captains of humanity. Now let me break it down just on a diagram in your manual here for just a second. Because each one of these manhoods are expressed out of this passage, I think, this way. First of all, the first Adam represents a manhood that I'm going to call a manhood set on a natural course. I see that in that 1 Corinthians passage by the word earthy. That's his focus. Earth. And that's all that there is. His sights go no further than that. It's a manhood that, as we saw in the book of Genesis, that's based on personal instinct and human reason and reaction. Adam thought he had it figured out and that he didn't need the revelation or the Word of God. I can do it. I got this figured out. So he set his course based on his own human reason. His manhood was self-made, self-decided, self-willed, and self-centered in the end. That's the shadow of Adam 1. It's a manhood that draws life from others. Remember in that passage, I told you that when Eve was about to sin, Adam was standing there, and as he was standing there watching, probably what was going through his mind is, if she lives, I win. If she dies, I'm not responsible. But what he was doing in that moment by not stepping forward as a real man is he was using his wife for his own ends by not being involved. Adam represents a manhood without transcendent meaning. He's not living for eternity. He's living for himself, the now Notice the passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It ended with, or it made the statement about Adam that he was just a living soul, nothing more. That's really what he became. His errant course just reduced him to mere existence. This life only, now. Now the second Adam looked totally different as we went through that passage. Here's the second Adam. His was a manhood set on a heavenly course. When you go through the Gospels, one of the things you're going to hear is Jesus declaring, Thy kingdom come. He lived with his sights up. He wasn't earthy. His whole life was heavenly. There was more to this life than that. And he was headed to this spiritual kingdom that he constantly proclaimed everywhere he went. His was a manhood yielded to revelation. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His manhood was not based on personal instinct, not what he felt, not human reason, not what he thought, not human reaction, what might have seemed right at the moment. He lived not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was his manhood. Revelation was at the heart of it. It was a manhood that empowered others. He told us that. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life for others. It was a manhood full of transcendent meaning. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Neither are my values. Neither is my way of life. My eyes are up, not down. And then it was a manhood that could be summarized as it was in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage. It said that Jesus' manhood, he came as a life-giving spirit. <laughs> I love that term. 
Because wherever he went, Jesus gave life to people. And by the way, guys, that's a great image of what real manhood is. Real manhood is when a man walks into a room or walks into his home or spends time with his friends. There is energy flowing out of him that's encouraging others, moving others in a positive direction, building them up, encouraging them, giving them life. The manhood that sucks life out of people is no manhood at all. That's being a boy. Boys take. Men give life. Now I want to play that out practically just for a moment because these two masculine identities, I think, play out practically. I'm going to use some terms just to give us, to add to that promise I made to you at the first of the year that we're going to have a manhood language. Because I think Adam's manhood becomes what I call conventional manhood. Remember that term, conventional manhood, because conventional manhood is a manhood that's promoted to men in every generation. In fact, as we go down the list, you'll go, you know, that's the manhood that America promotes. But that's the manhood that, you know, England promoted 100 years ago. Or we could go back into the Dark Ages. They promoted 500 years ago. Or we could go to Greece in 200 B.C. Or to Assyria in 500 B.C. It's the same manhood in every generation. It's the manhood of Adam. It's conventional manhood. And what does it focus on? these things. What a man does. Competition with other men. Temporal power. Personal rewards. Self. And you could put self in capital letters. And success. These are all the characteristics of conventional manhood. And conventional manhood is a kind of manhood that when men embrace it, it works for a while. But usually, and in kind of the life cycle of men that we'll talk about later in men's fraternity, usually about 40 or 45, this manhood begins to burn out. Suddenly I'm saturated with self, but it's left debris in my wake. I'm a success, but I don't feel good about me. Why? I've competed with men and I've wounded a lot of people in the process. My whole life was to win. And before I knew it, it was winning at all cost. And after enough cost, now it's costing me. And so somewhere along the line, you hit this wall and you go, okay, this is the manhood I bought into. But now I'm not satisfied with it and I don't, I don't know what to do. And a lot of men find themselves at that place. Jesus Christ offered a different kind of manhood. I'm going to call it authentic manhood because we're on the quest for authentic manhood. And I want you to know what it focuses on. It doesn't, it doesn't totally throw out the conventional side. It's where the focus is. More than what a man does, the authentic manhood focuses on what a man is focuses on character, his integrity, his good name, so to speak. It's what he carries with inside him, the values that he embodies. That becomes important. That's what carries him the distance. Not just what he does, what he is. And Jesus 
reflects that manhood to all humanity. It's a manhood that focuses on community with other men. Competing is part of life, but competing is not to be the focus of life. Community is to be the focus. It focuses on transcendent purpose, not just temporal power. It focuses on eternal rewards, not just personal rewards. If all there is is personal rewards, that is such a self-saturated life. There's got to be something higher than me. And certainly there is, and Jesus declared that more than any other. More than self, it's a manhood that focuses on others. And more than success, it focuses on what's significant. In 1 Corinthians, as well as the Bible, Old and New Testament, as well as these Adams, 1st Adam and 2nd and Adam, basically this is what the Bible declares on masculinity. Here is a summary. I've set before you two manhoods. That's what it declares. The manhood of Adam and the manhood of Jesus. The manhood of darkness and the manhood of life. The manhood of death and the manhood of life. You choose. But every man will finish his life in the light or the shadow of one of these two men because all men are comprehended in them. Now here's what I want you to know. If we took these two atoms, and this is what we're going to do at the last part of this morning and next week, and we took these two men and we pressed them together, like I said last week, four defining definitions fall out. Four, four defining components will fall out. And they will make up our definition of manhood. And I'm going to give you the first here this morning. We're only going to look at the first. And then the remaining three I'll give next week. But when you press these guys together, here's the first defining difference. The first Adam, it says, fell into passivity. The second Adam, that is Christ, rejected that passivity. The first Adam, guys, in the moment of his fall, he reeked of passivity. We know that, as I've said, that God set before this Adam three things to do, three specific responsibilities, a will to obey, a work to do, and a woman to love and care for. And yet in the events of Genesis 3, when we got to that tight focus moment, where's Adam? Where is he? Here's what Genesis 3 says in this moment. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. You know, a lot of people think of the Genesis story as the woman over there all by herself entertaining this, this uh, temptation with the enemy alone. And her husband's off somewhere, totally out of sight, doing what he needs to do, but having left her alone, and that's how the sin took place. That's not how the sin took place. This tells us how the sin took place. Adam was there. He was watching the whole event transpire. And when the woman had been thoroughly deceived and seduced, he being there with her also took and ate. Now here's the point. The thing that jumps out in this passage is that 
rather than doing what masculinity does, true masculinity, which is do something, Adam is standing there. He just went flat. He went passive. He didn't do anything. That's the problem. It's what we see happening in homes all across America. Rather than men doing something, they're just standing there. Rather than being involved the way they should with their children, they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything necessarily wrong. They're just standing there. It's a passivity that just sweeps over men in every generation. In fact, Yale sociologist Stephen Clark made this observation as he looked at humanity through time. He said this, for whatever reason, men have a natural tendency to avoid social responsibility. And I thought, natural tendency. Where'd they get that? It comes from the shadow of the first Adam. Men have a natural tendency to wait in regards to significant social and spiritual things. They, they, they can't find whatever it is within the energy to move forward and to seize direction, both spiritually and socially, in the most critical of, set, of settings. Had one guy after a talk like this come down to me, he was a very successful man. He said, you know, I'm Adam in spades. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've made a great living for my family. But when it comes to social and spiritual involvement in my family, all I've done for a generation is just stand there. Just hang around. Watch the TV. Go play some golf. And hang. But in doing that, he hung his family. The first Adam fell into passivity and created this inaction and inertia, I think, in every man to some degree. But the second man, Jesus Christ, rejected passivity. In fact, you see more real manhood in the manger of Jesus Christ at Christmas than you do in Adam in the garden. Look at Philippians 2. Here's what it says. This is speaking of Jesus in heaven before He became incarnate and then coming to earth. It says... Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God. The very thing that Adam wanted, equality with God. Jesus did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied it, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, and let me explain Think of a moment in heaven and God is saying as he watches a lost and fallen world disconnected with God entirely. God asked the question, the Father, who will stand up for humanity? Who will stand up for the human race? And we saw that the first Adam showed us what he would do. He couldn't even stand up for his wife. But in this moment, Jesus equal with God in that regal setting where he had all the rights and privileges of God because he was God, he said, I'll do something about it. And that's the essence of humanity. He said, I'll accept responsibility for it. I'll step forward. And in that instant, suddenly, he was in a manger. And what I want you to see is when you look at Adam in the garden, 
He looks like a man, but he's really a boy. And when you look in the manger of Jesus Christ, he looks like a baby, but he's the essence of manhood. And the reason for that is because he was willing to step forward. And guys, here's what I want you to know. That's what men do. They come through. Real manhood is not hanging out in a self-centered passivity. Real manhood is not waiting for mama or my wife or my society to tell me what to do. Real manhood is rejecting that passivity and saying, I'll do it. I'll step forward. I'll accept responsibility. And in giving my life for others and in watching that life spread into my wife, into my girlfriend, into my family, into my community, and into my church, and into the world. That's real manhood. It's becoming, like Jesus, a life-giving spirit. So, this is just the first. We've pressed these two men together just for a moment. And we've asked the question, what is a man? And what is spilled out is the first of four very important components. Real manhood. Real men reject social and spiritual passivity. Think about it. And then next week, we'll talk about the last three. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.